Well, take your Bibles, and I invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm so thankful for Bob Harima faithfully preaching the word last week and taking us to 1 John and showing us John's picture of God, how God is light, and in him there is no unrighteousness whatsoever. It was edifying to our souls. And so this Lord's Day, we come back to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, and we want to come again to verses 22 through 24. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. As we continue to look at what the Word of God says about the Christian wife, and so the title of the message is just simply The Believing Wife, Part 2. Ephesians 5, and I want to begin reading in verse 22. The Word of God says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Well, you remember last time we were in these verses, we focused on the responsibility of Christian wives. That was our first point. And then we focused upon the motive of Christian wives to, to live how the Lord tells her how to live here. That was our second point. And our third point was the one we started last time, but we did not finish. And that third point was the reasons she ought to do it. What are the reasons? So just sort of by way of reminder, we saw when we looked at her responsibility, it really can be summed up this way. What is her responsibility? Her responsibility is simply this. She is to be submissive to her husband. And we talked about that. We talked about what submission is not. And then we also talked about what submission is. And we said that submission is not obedience like a child would obey parents. It's not that kind of obedience. Instead, how does Scripture present husbands and wives? Scripture presents husbands and wives as equal heirs of the grace of life. So a wife is to be honored that way. A wife is to be honored by her husband. She's not a child who just simply renders this simple obedience to her husband like a child would be expected to do toward a parent. It's a different relationship there. So that is not what submission is. We also said that when we're talking about submission and when we're talking about what submission is not, submission is not a wife losing her uniqueness. It is not a wife losing her personality and just sort of being absorbed into the personality of her husband. That is not what submission is. He also said this, it's not a wife turning a blind eye to the faults of her husband, the sins of her husband. That is not what submission is. So if those things are not what submission is, what is submission? Well, we said last time that submission is a wife realizing that God has called her husband to be the leader in that relationship, to be the leader in their home. And it is her willingness to come alongside of him and to do so in a sense that she realizes he is the authority in the home. 
He is the one who has authority. Coming alongside of him and being exactly who God designed her to be, the helpmate to the one who is the authority, helping her husband, helping him to be all that God has called him to be, helping him to achieve all that God wants him to achieve as far as being the leader in the home and being the leader in the family. That is what submission is. That is true godly biblical submission. Really, as the Greek word says here, it's coming under rank. It is a, assuming that God-given role that he has given to her. That is submission. So what is she to do? She is to submit to her husband. And we began looking at last time how the Lord gives her two reasons of why she is to do this, why she ought to do this. The first reason we looked at last time, you see it in these verses. Look at verse 23. For, or we could just as easily translate that word because, for because the husband is the head of the wife. And so there's the first reason right there. The husband is the head of the wife. And this goes all the way back to creation. Why does she give this submission? Because God designed it that way. This is why she does it. Now the Bible places stress on two things that we've been talking about. Number one, when the Bible speaks of the Christian wife, listen, the Bible continually stresses submission. You go to Colossians 3 and you look at the Christian wife there, what do you see? Submission. You go to 1 Peter 3 and you look at the Christian wife there, what do you see? You see submission. You go to 1 Peter, I mean 1 Timothy chapter 2, you see submission there. You go to Ephesians 5, where we're at here, you see submission. So we need to understand, God is placing his emphasis there. This is not some male chauvinist named Paul who's placing the emphasis and the stress there. No, this is Almighty God. He is the one who is placing stress here. He is the one who is placing emphasis here. So what do we see here? The first reason that she is supposed to give submission is because of creation. It has to do with God's design. As a matter of fact, this word, this word head doesn't just speak of authority. It, it also speaks of origination. It speaks of source here. And so one of the reasons why the Christian wife is to be in submission to her husband is because it is God's creative design. It is God's created order. He made the man first, and he made the man first because the man is to be the leader. The man is to assume the place of authority in the family, in the home. And so as the woman, the Christian woman, considers creation, as she looks at creation and that the woman was taken from the man, it is God's will for her husband that he be the leader in that relationship and in that home. So that's one of the reasons that we see this given here. God's creation design. And, and you remember last time we, we looked closely at that. And listen, it's, it's impossible to sum it up without us like having a three-hour sermon. Okay, So you're just going to have to go back week before last, Lord's Day, and just try to maybe listen to it on Facebook and try to get all that we looked at there. But, but I felt that this morning I needed just to lay that groundwork because as we begin this today, we begin with the second reason why God gives the Christian wife of why she ought to be submitted to her husband. Look at verse 23. 
It says, for the husband is the head of the wife. Now, here's the second reason. Look at it. Everyone look at this verse. As Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So a Christian wife might ask, okay, well, why, why should I be subject to my husband? Well, number one reason you should be subject to your husband is that's the way God made it. Creation. Creation. But the second reason you should be subject to the husband is the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. That is the second reason. So, Christian wife, when we think about Christ... And when we think about his church, you are now afforded a second reason why you are to be submissive to your husband. And so I want us to really understand that this morning. I want us to wrap our arms around that and really get that this morning. So, so how does that give a Christian wife a reason for submission? And there are three main observations I'd like to point out today, and you can find those in your bulletin. The first one I want you to see with me is this. Actually, two things, actually. So uh, there were three. <laughs> it's a mercy. I, I put that out, all right? Uh, so I want you to see, first of all, the instruction. The instruction. This is the instruction that only a Christian can understand. This is something that is uniquely Christian. You notice everything else that we talked about, you can find in the Old Testament. If you want to talk about God's original design, if you want to talk about how God made the man, how God made the woman, how she used to be the helpmate to the man in the garden and all that, you find all of that in the Old Testament. That's just general. That's how it is for everyone, whether saved or unsaved, whether Christian or not. That's just how it is. His creation. But now... Now we see something that is uniquely Christian here. When God comes to this second reason, he says basically this, okay, now, okay, we looked at creation, now consider Christ and consider his church. So now we're talking about something that is uniquely Christian here. And if you are not a part of the Lord's church, and if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to tell you there's, there's no way for you to ever understand what we're talking about here. Yes, you can understand it intellectually, but you will never understand it. Until you come to Christ, you will never understand this in such a way of motivation, in such a way that you desire to live this way, you want to live this way. You will never comprehend this in that way until you come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Apart from Him, that desire and that want is outside of you. And you can never know this in this way. So right away we can say this, that this is one of the reasons why a Christian must not marry an unbeliever. You must not marry someone who isn't a Christian. You can't do that. You must not do that because right away you're going to be in conflict in your marriage relationship. There's going to be a difference there. You're going to want to live out the will of God. This person can't desire to truly live out the will of God. And so there's a difference that is there. And inevitably there's going to come a time in your marriage after you've married that unsaved person and you're going to, to maybe hear a sermon like this and because you are truly saved, 
Because you truly know the Lord. It's going to be in your heart to want to live out these things. And you're going to say to yourself, yes, this is what I want to do in my life. This is who I want to be. I want to be a Christian wife. Or a saved husband who's married to an unsaved wife is going to listen to the truths of what we're going to look at, Lord willing, in the next few Lord's Days. And he's going to say, this is how I want to live. I want to be this kind of a man in my house. I want to live this sort of a way in where I'm functioning in my home as a Christian man ought to function. But now listen, if you are married to someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. Uh, This kind of teaching, this kind of instruction here in your conscience that you know, that desire that you know in your life, well, that is going to be absent in them. They're not going to have that. And so there is now going to be this desire in your heart to want to live this out and to do these things. And you're going to be married to someone who really has no desire to do the same, who really has no desire to, to live in this way. And so as a result, there is going to inevitably be times of frustration, inevitably to be times of a lack of fulfillment. And there will be conflict to one degree or another, to one level or another in your home as a result of that. Because in your hearts, you're in two different places. You have a strong desire of which he knows nothing about. He has a strong desire in which you know nothing about. And so there's conflict there. And let me be quick to add this, okay? For all you singles out there, all right? Please listen up. Not only should you not marry someone who is not a Christian, not marry someone who is not truly a believer in Christ, Wisdom would say, of course, that you should not be dating, you should not be courting, you should not be whatever you want to call it, someone who is an unbeliever. You you shouldn't be doing this. Listen, Scripture talks about being unequally yoked and says you should not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so that being the case, let me ask you, singles, why would you ever want to take a first step down that road that could possibly lead you there? Uh, what, what wisdom is that? I mean, why? Why would you do that? Let me ask you this. What is the purpose in that? If you're wanting to do that, I ask you this question. What is the purpose? Can you give me a one-sentence purpose in why you're wanting to do that? Because wisdom would go against that, and the Bible is very clear that we ought not to be unequally yoked. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says this. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? There is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 would say, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes. Let's read the end of the verse. Only in the Lord. There's the caveat right there, right? You go marry anyone you want to marry, but they better be a believer if you're a believer. Only in the Lord. She is free to marry anyone she wishes, but it must be in the Lord. That is to say, he must be a believer. He must be a Christian. And so we understand that this is a uniquely Christian teaching 
that requires the understanding of Jesus and the understanding of his church. And so we ought to be very clear on the fact that we ought not to marry someone who is not a Christian. You may say, well, uh, in my situation, I've already gotten married and I'm married to an unbeliever now. Or maybe you were both unbelievers when you got married and maybe now one of you is a believer and one of you is not, is not a believer. So you say, well, what do I do in that situation? Here I am, for example, a, a believing wife now, a Christian wife, and yet now I, I, I am married to someone who's lost, someone who's unsaved. What do I do in this situation? Well, Scripture gives us the answer to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 makes that very clear what you're to do. As long as they are willing to stay with you, you stay with them. That is what it says there. And and you stay with them. You, you do not initiate a divorce. You live with them. And before them, they, hey, they have a missionary right in their house, right? And so what do you do? You live out your life before them. You live out your faith before them. You let them hear the truth of the word of God coming from your mouth at those opportune times that God gives. And you let them see always the truth of your Christian profession in Christ. And you pray for the salvation of that lost person that you're married to and you live out that life before them and that is God's will for you. That is his will for you. So we see the instruction. Now second, I want you to see this. I want you to see the illustration, the illustration. So looking at Ephesians 5, notice verse 23. Notice the comparative language used here in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife. Now, you may want to circle this word, okay? As. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. So do you see this comparison that's going on here? So, so th th there's something here that, that we can compare between husbands and wives and Christ and his church. And so as we consider this comparison here, uh, there are going to be lessons. There are going to be reasons given to the Christian wife of why she ought to submit to her husband. And so that leads me to ask this question. As I've been looking at this over this last week and studying this, here's the question here. Here's the million-dollar question in this whole text. As you look at this text, here it is. What is it? What is it about Christ's relationship to his church that gives a Christian woman a reason to be submitted to her husband. What is it in this comparison? What is it in this illustration that will give a Christian wife a reason? Well, let me just point out a couple of things here. First of all, this illustration speaks of unity. It speaks of unity. I mean, when you talk about a head and you talk about a body, what are you talking about? You're talking about a coordinated effort there, right? I mean, you're talking about unity there. And, and this just absolutely just thrills my heart here. And I hope it does yours as well. I mean, do you, do you see this? Do you, do you know what the Apostle Paul is doing? The Apostle Paul is taking doctrine. He's taking theology. He's taking doctrine. And he's just simply applying that to lives. I mean, that's all he's doing here. How is he doing that? Well, because he's already taken this letter that he's written to the Ephesians 
He's already talked about the church. He's talked about the doctrine of the church here. And he's already talked about Christ. He's already talked to his bo about the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, let's go back and look at that. Turn back just a few pages to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And look at verse 22. And it says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. And now fast forward over to chapter 4 real quick. Chapter 4, and look at verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by the trickery of men and by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, you've got to know and you've got to understand what Paul's already talked about when he talks about these things to really understand what he's talking about now over in Ephesians 5. When we get to Ephesians 5, verses 22, 23, and 24, we need to understand this. And so we're reminded that the Christian who's going to do their best in their marriage is the Christian who is going to do their best in taking basic sound doctrine and putting it into their marriage, applying it to their marriage. Christian living is not first and foremost focusing upon marriage, focusing upon raising children. It's about focusing on our walk with Christ. That is what is primary. It's about learning basic sound doctrine. And then we take that sound doctrine and then we apply it in certain ways, certain very specific ways. And so he's saying this, the Apostle Paul is saying, okay, now that we've taught you sound doctrine, we want you to take sound doctrine and we want you now to apply sound doctrine. So therefore, understanding Christ and the relation that he has with his church, understanding how the head and the body function, I now want you to bring that into your marriage and to understand that. And I want wives to think about how you respond to your husbands. And remember something, when you talk about a head and when you talk about a body, you're talking about a relationship of unity, right? There's a unity that's there. Yes, it is true that the body does have individual members. We have uh, a hand, we have a foot, we have an ear, we have a nose, we have eyes, we have all those things. And, and you have unique assignments and functions that are, that are assigned to each one of those. I mean, we do have that. We do have those, those divisions that are there, those different body parts. But when we talk about a body, a body is not a collection, just a mass of these different Groups. I mean, you could take all of that and have them separate from each other, just throw them in a 50-gallon in a bucket. I mean, that's not a body there, is it? There's a body parts. 
not to be too gross this morning, but, uh, but that's not a body. But what we're talking about is a body that is composed of those different things. And so certainly the uh, individual parts do not function independently of each other, but there is a unity among the parts within the body. It is a body. And so it is the head that coordinates all of those processes, processes there so that the entire body functions together. And as the body functions together, what type of functioning do we see there? We see a unity of function. There's a unity. And so if you have a body that is functioning separate from the head, well, you've got some serious problems there, right? Uh, there, there's something that is not happening properly there. And, and that's a lesson for the Christian wife. That is a lesson for the Christian wife. Listen, the body doesn't act independently of the head. We need to know that. We need to understand that. That is to say that the wife's role is not to act independently of her husband. That is what this is saying. She is not to act apart from her husband. She is not to act before her husband. She's not to be leading the way. Think about the body again. Does the body lead the head or does the head lead the body? We know the answer to that, right? And so when we apply it to this, she is not to be leading the way. She's not to be doing things independent of her head, her husband. Now listen, please don't, don't do as some people have, have done and just take this to a, a sort of silly extreme where you have people saying, well, the wife, almost like a little kid, like a little baby, has to ask her husband permission for every little single thing he, she wants to do. Now that is not what this is saying here. And I think sometimes some people would take things to the point of silliness like that because they just don't want to really understand what the truth of the matter is, what, what this is really saying here. They don't want to face that truth. But the truth that we're getting at here and what this does mean is this, she is not rebelling. She's not rebelling against her God-given role as helpmate to her husband. She's not rebelling against his God-given role as head. She's not rebelling against that. She's not a rebel who is disregarding the order that God has given. A Christian wife is not to be leading her husband. She's not to be acting independent of him. She's not to be acting before him. That would be the body leading the head, not the head leading the body. How does a Christian wife do this sometimes? How, how does a, a Christian wife violate God's will in this? Well, she does this when she does things that she knows her husband does not want her to do. I mean, honestly, with this illustration, it is just as simple as that. When, when, when her husband has expressly told her not to do something, and she does that, she's in violation of this. And I wonder, even in our, in our assembly this morning, in our fellowship, the question would be this. Do we have Christian women, Christian women who are actively rebelling against their husbands, Christian women who are doing things right now, and they know they're doing things that they know that he has asked them not 
to do, things that he would ask them not to do. And yet, yet you continue to do those things. And so what are you doing? You are acting independent of him. You are a body part acting independent of the head in this illustration here. You are acting as if you are the head and as if he, he is the body, according to this illustration. So how does a wife do this? Well, a wife does this when, for instance, she takes things into her own hands because she feels her husband is wrong. Well, he, he's wrong in this, or maybe she feels like he's not making a decision uh, quickly enough. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've heard some other women talk like this. And they say, well, you know what? Uh, I gave him time to do the right thing, and he just didn't do it, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And, and we hear that, right? We, we hear that. And again, look at the biblical illustration here. Look at the biblical illustration. If you take this illustration, the body and the head, and if you think of a body acting in unity, a body acting in coordination here, you have a picture that is entirely wrong Whenever you have a wife saying, well, you know what? My husband is just dragging his feet, and so I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to go do it instead. And I'm just going to get it done because he's not doing it. And a wife violates this picture whenever she acts as if they have two independent lives, as if there's not a coordination here, as if there's not supposed to be a unity here, as if they are just two separate entities in the relationship not recognizing that they have a shared life together that is what this illustration is showing they have a shared life together though they are different members in the body they are to act as a whole they are to act as a unit and God produces this corporate results they are one they are one in marriage and by the way, let me just say this. Everything that we've said about wives last time, we were in these verses, and what we're saying today, I want to say this to you men. They speak just as strongly to us men who are here today, us men who are Christian husbands. Because I want to tell you this. You, you, you know what, guys? What we've got to do is we've got to recognize when we are not leading in a godly way, whenever we are not leading in a godly manner, a way that a godly husband should be leading, the way that we're going to, Lord willing, learn about it over the next few weeks, and we're not doing that. And yes, she's right. We are dragging our feet. And yes, she's right. We are not functioning as a leader in the home. She's right on all those accounts. We're not taking the leadership role. Do you know what you're doing, men, when you do that? When you slack and you fall back and you do not lead, you, you are exposing your wife to the kind of temptation that would reverse this order for her to step outside of her God-given role. Men, that is what you're doing. You're providing the stage. You're providing the way. You're providing the temptation for her to do this. Now, when she does it, is she right to do it? No, she's, she's not right to do it. But what I'm saying to you men, you godly Christian husbands, is that you're not free from responsibility in this either. You have got a great 
responsibility here. And so God means for us to provide the kind of example and to provide the kind of love and the kind of sacrifice and the kind of leadership that makes it easy for her to walk in her God-given role that God has given to her. So I wanna ask you men here today, you Christian men who are married, are you making it easy as a leader in your home for your wife to do that? Yes or no, there is no C, there's no option C. You're either doing that or you're not doing that. And if you're not doing that, I wanna tell you, you are making it difficult for her in her role that God has given to her. So are you making it difficult for her or are you making it a joyful thing for her to come under your leadership and to be the helpmate God has called her to be, to be submissive to you the way God has called her to be? Are you making it easy? Are you making it a joy for her or are you quite frankly making it a headache for her to do these things? So this is not just the wives, right? This is to all of us. This is to all of us. So when we think about this illustration, Christ and his church, the first thing we see is unity. It is not the body acting independent of the head. And then something we can say along these same lines is this, the body not only should not act independent of the head, but the body should not be unresponsive to the head as well, which is to say to the Christian wife that you should not act before your husband, that is true, but on the other hand, you should not also lag behind and to stall and to sort of do this, this passive rebellion, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, by not supporting your husband's leadership. You shouldn't do that. Sometimes a wife will do that. Sometimes a wife will rebel against God's design by running ahead of her husband, but sometimes a wife will rebel against God's design by just digging her heels in and not following him, not coming alongside of him, not supporting him, just making all of his decisions to be just super difficult and just forcing him to lead like sort of in an uphill fashion. So it's like he's got to lock in the four by four to, to just be able to lead and to bring you along with him. And so that's wrong too. So ladies, let me ask you this. Has your husband been trying to lead you in a godly way? Has he been trying to do that? And you sort of just dug in your heels and you've made it hard for him. I mean, you, you don't support him. You don't come alongside of him. You don't encourage him. And one of the things that we've been looking at, whether we're talking about marriage or whether we're talking about authority just in, in general in a larger perspective, one of the things we have to learn, and this is very crucial, is there's a difference. There's a difference between sacrificing truth, sacrificing truth, consciences, and then on the other side, sacrificing opinions. Opinions. Anyone who's going to learn what it is to respond biblically to authority is going to have to learn what it is to sacrifice opinions. Opinions. Listen, we, we never sacrifice truth. We never violate our consciences by violating scripture in the name of obeying authority. Listen, we never, ever, ever do that. We don't do that. But listen, the very concept of authority is this. Hey, there is a leader here and there is a follower here. And guess what? The two are not always going to agree. They're not always going to agree. And so 
I have to learn, you know what? Okay, I, I don't agree with this, but it is not a violation of biblical truth. It's not a violation of my conscience, which is informed by biblical truth. Really, it is just my opinion, and so I'm going to have to sacrifice my opinion to the one whom I am under the authority of. That is what I'm going to have to do. This is what we have to learn to do when it comes to true biblical authority. And a Christian wife is going to have to learn to do this. And so, you know what? It plays like, I like this. Um, well, I don't know if I would do it like this. You know, my husband is making this choice. He's sort of going this route. I don't think I would do that if I was making the decision here. I don't necessarily agree with that. And you know what? It may not necessarily turn out well. I mean, it, it may not turn out well. And so praise the Lord that we believe the word of God, right? All things work together for good, right? For those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. It may turn out bad in the short time, but eventually it will work out for good. And it may be true. Your husband honestly truly did and he may even admit it he made the wrong decision here but listen when he was making that decision it wasn't a matter of truth that he was asking you to violate it wasn't a matter of your conscience that he was asking you to violate no you sacrifice your opinion in that matter and you supported your husband your husband's decisions and then together you went that way and you know what it went down in flames. It turned out to be a horrible decision to make. But I want you to listen to me, Christian wife. You did the right thing. You did the right thing. You did the godly thing. You did the biblical thing. And I want to tell you, God will bless that. God will bless your obedience in doing that. So what do you do? You give your husband counsel. You pray for your husband. You caution him whenever you feel the Lord would have you to caution him. But once he says, okay, honey, I really do believe that this is the way God would have us to go. I, I know that you would make a different decision, but I truly believe this is the way we should go. It is your role. It is your responsibility to come alongside of him and say to you, honey, you know what? You're exactly right. <laughs> I would not make this decision. I would not go this way. But you know what? I will support you in this. I will encourage you in this. And I will share with you in this decision that you're making. Listen, it shouldn't be the attitude. Okay, fine. I, I told you. But... You need to understand, this is you. This is, this is, you're doing this, and, and I'm telling you, I don't think we should do this. And you go over to the calendar, and it's uh, what's the day? October 1st. October 1st, 2023. I'm going to write it down. You're making this decision. I don't think we should do this. And you know what we believe about divorce, right? So I'm not leaving, and I'm going to be here the rest of your life to tell you that you made the wrong decision. Now, that is not the spirit that we're looking at here. No, we go into this together. And for better or worse, whether it looks like success or whether it looks like absolute failure, this is now our decision. We're going together. And you know why it is our decision? It's because there's a head and there's a body. And there's a unity here. They are one. They are not 
separate. They are one. And so this is where the illustration is helpful to us. And we need to remember it's, it's one and the body doesn't run, uh, uh, the body doesn't run ahead of, of the head and the body is not also unresponsive to the head. There's a coordinated effort that is worked out in a very practical way. And so God gives us this illustration of his son and his church that this understanding might be amplified for us and clarified for us. But not only does this illustration speak of unity, and it does, but it also speaks of dependency. Dependency. And as I look at this, look at verse 23. As I look at this, I think this may in fact be the greatest stress that is being placed here in this passage. Dependency. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Savior of the body. And I want to tell you that statement has, has puzzled many a commentator. He himself being the Savior of the body. And they ask themselves, well, what, what does this have to do with marriage? What, what possible comparison could there be between Christ as Savior of his body and a husband and a wife? Oh, where do those things touch together? I mean, after all, when you think about Christ and how Christ is the Savior of his body, how did he save his body? How did he save his church? He saved us from our sins. He saved us by dying on the cross. He saved us by being raised again from the dead. He has saved us by ascending to the right hand of the power on high where he ever lives to make intercession for us by presenting his merits. He has saved us. That is how Christ has saved his body. The church, so then, that being the case, how can there be any comparison between Christ saving his body and a husband relating to his wife? How can there be any connection there? Well, indeed, if we took the term Savior that way, I would submit to you that there would be no comparison there whatsoever. None at all. But one of the things we have to learn as we study the Word of God is the same word can mean different things in different contexts, depending on the context. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that I do not think that we should understand the word Savior to mean Redeemer in this context. You say, well, how should we understand Savior? Well, I believe we should understand it in the sense of being a preserver, Savior in the sense of preserving the body, Savior in the sense of caring for his body, Savior in the sense of protecting his body, providing for his body. That is who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the protector. Jesus Christ is the preserver. He is the provider. He is the caregiver to his body. And so in the same way, the husband is to be the protector, the provider, the caregiver, the, the cherisher of his body, who is his wife. You say, okay, well, where, where do we get that from? Can, can you make a, a case from Scripture for that? Well, let me just give you one example. Listen to this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 says this, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Listen to this. Who is the Savior of all men. 
especially a believer. So, did you hear that? Let me, let me just read that again. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is a savior of all men, especially of believers. What does that mean? What does it mean when this verse says he is the savior of all men, especially of believers? Listen, it cannot mean redemption, right? Because if it means redemption, we're saying that he has redeemed all men and we are into the world of universalism now, which is a heresy. This would have God saving all men, every single person. And others have explained this verse this way, that Jesus Christ is the only provided Savior for all men. But believers have especially come to know him in a very special saving sense. And, and as you look at that verse, you, you could interpret that verse that way. But let me give you another way that we could look at it. It is that it is God who is the Savior of all mankind in terms of providing for them, in terms of protecting them, in terms of caring for them, in terms of, of giving to them, giving them sunshine, giving them rain, giving them food. But he especially cares for his children. I mean, do we see that truth taught in Scripture anywhere? Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. When you have the apostles, you have Paul and Barnabas who, who came to Lystra and there they, they healed a man. And when they, when they healed him, they were calling Paul and Barnabas Zeus and Hermes. They were calling them these gods and they were so stricken to the heart over this. And, and, and they wanted to straighten this out. And here's what they said in Acts chapter 14 verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted the nations to go their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So this living God has not only created creation, but he also sustains creation and he provides for it and he cares for it. So in that sense, he, he protects it. In that sense, he saves it. And so in that sense, he is the savior. He is the one who is the savior. He provides for it. He cares for it. Another example, turn over to Acts chapter 17 real quick. I want you to see this. Acts chapter 17. What do you have going on here? You have Paul going to Athens there, and he finds an idol there, and the idol is to the unknown God. And so he takes an opportunity to do what Paul does best. He preaches the gospel. And so look at what it says. Acts chapter 17. Look at verse 23. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man 
every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And by the way, let me just point this out there. If you ever want to question the literal account of creation, just remember right here that Paul declares that every single person was born from how many people originally? One. Born from Adam. All descended from Adam. So continue on. Look at it. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So what is Paul declaring here? Paul is declaring that God is your creator. You are his offspring. And so he is the one in whom you live and move and have your being. He is the one in whom you exist. He didn't just make you, he preserves you. So in that sense, he provides for you. He saves you, he cares for you. But Paul's saying, but listen, there's another kind of saving. There's another kind of salvation. There's a spiritual salvation. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, you still stand in need of that. You're not his that way. You are not a spiritual offspring. You are only his child naturally. And so you must repent and turn to the living God. That is what he's saying here. So getting back to what we said beginning, I would submit to you that the word Savior can mean preserver protector, cherisher, caregiver. And going back to Ephesians 5, I think that's how he's using it in our text here. Look back there, and, and I want to show you this. I want, I want to go back to our immediate text, and I want us to see it here. Can this be demonstrated in our immediate context here? And I believe it can. Ephesians 5, look at what he says in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being, now let's try out our definition here, okay? The savior, the preserver, the protector, the caregiver, the provider of the body, all right? Now, move down to verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own what? Bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. That's his own body. But what does he do? Look at it. But nourishes and cherishes it. What does it say? Just as Christ also does what? The church. The church. Because we are members of his body. So what does Christ do with his body? He loves his body. He provides for his body. He nourishes his body. He protects his body. He is the caregiver to his body, the church. And I believe that is exactly what he is talking about in verse 23. 
And that's why he ties this concept, I believe, of Savior into this comparison. Because now, understanding it that way, well, now we do have a comparison, right? I would say. So as Christ is the provider and the caregiver for his body, so also is the husband to be the provider and the cherisher and the caregiver and the protector to his body, which is his wife. His wife. And here's another reason that a wife should be submitted to her husband. Because that is your husband's God-given role. This is your husband's God-given role. Listen, his role is to provide for you. His role is to be a caregiver to you. His role is to cherish you. This is his God-given role. And isn't this interesting because you see, this is one of the things that really, I mean, you want to get the ire up of the lost and dying world out there. You just start talking about this because we live in a day and age in which the world hates the idea that there would be someone who for wives would be a protector, who would be a provider, who would be a cherisher of them. And the thought, as the apostle put it here, that, that the wife, as Peter says, is the weaker vessel. I mean, that just causes the hair on the back of their necks just to stand up. I mean, they can't take that. They literally just can't take that idea. But I want to tell you, that is exactly what the Bible declares. That is exactly what the Bible says. And you know what? This goes back as far back as the fall. Take your Bibles and turn over to Genesis 3 for a moment. Because we've, we see it reflected in creation going as far back as the fall. Genesis chapter 3. And when you get there, you're going to notice the context. What has happened in Genesis 3? We have the fall. The fall has occurred there. And man and woman have sinned. And so God is now declaring how they're going to feel the effects of that sin. And so notice what he says to the wife. Look at verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And we talked about that last time. That, that now, now because of sin, a, a wife is going to find it hard to be submissive to her husband. This is not going to be just easy. It's not just going to be just naturally natural. And so now because of sin, the husband, because of the way he will respond to that, the way he'll sinfully respond to that is, well, you're just going to have a little Hitler in the home. And he's going to be a little despot. He's going to be like a little tyrant in, in the house there. And he's just going to sort of slam his fist down. And whether he actually says it in word or whether he just says it in deed, he is going to say, you know what, I am going to rule over you. I'm going to have the rule in this place. I'm the king of my castle here. And so both of them are sinful. Both of them are wrong. Both of them are the result of the fall. But what I want you to see in the 16th verse is, is where will the wife feel the effects of sin? Where, where will it be? It'll be in childbirth. In other words, it'll be in the realm of the home life. It'll be in the realm of the home. Now look where the man's going to feel it. Verse 17 then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. So where's the man going to feel it? What's the answer? He's going to feel it in his work. He's going to feel it in his work. Now, when you look at that picture, who is the provider? Who is the provider here? It's the husband. Who is the homemaker? Who, where's, who is in the home realm? It, it, it is the wife. And I want to tell you, the word of God has not changed in that respect. Turn over to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, I want you to see this, something that's very important. And I want to tell you, this has, this has absolutely been lost in our day, in the lost world. And I fear it has come into the church like a tsunami, that this idea is just gone. But it's so important. And do you know that wherever these truths are taught in Scripture, there's a great emphasis that this is sound doctrine. This is, this is where the emphasis is placed. So look at Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for what? Sound doctrine. This is sound doctrine. So verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love. In perseverance, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage their young women to love their husbands, to advance their careers, to, wait, is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. Look at what it says, to love their children, to be sensible, pure. What does it say next? Look at, workers at home. And it goes on to say, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be, what? Dishonored. Dishonored. Now this is God's will. It is God's will that man take his responsibility as savior of the body that God has given to him, his wife, in the sense that he is the provider he is the protector. He is the caregiver. He is the cherisher. And the wife willingly assumes her role as the helpmate. If I can say it this way, the helpmate to allow her husband to be what God has intended him to be. And I want to tell you, we said it last time, I want to say it again. Listen, this is not about ability here. This is not about ability. I, I have no doubt that there are many, many ladies who could go out and who could have jobs and careers and, and go much higher up the corporate ladder and make much more than, than many men could make. So what we're talking about here, we're not talking about ability here. That's not what this is about. This is about God's design. This is about God's will. This is about sound, healthy families. This is about so that the church won't be ravaged by so many problems that the, that the world faces. This is about believing children growing up in homes so that they can have a clear concept between the role of a man and the role of a woman in the home. This is so that young men learn to honor young women and so that young women can grow up pure and chaste and to live with a sense of dignity of what it is to... To, to live in a way that God has called for true biblical womanhood. That is what this is all about. Folks, I want to tell you this, and you know this. 
I mean, I'm just preaching to the choir here now, but the world does not elevate the perspective of women. The world lowers the perspective of women by making them masculine. And the world does not elevate the dignity and the honor of manhood. The world lowers it by trying to teach men who are masculine that that is sinfully wrong, that you should not do that. So the question is this, who are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to the unbelieving world or are we going to listen to the word of God? We have to make that decision in our hearts first and foremost. And so clearly what we see in the word of God is this truth. It is the man's role. It is the man's responsibility to be the provider for his home. Now, very quickly on the heels of that, the question comes up. What well, does that mean that the wife cannot make any type of economical or any type of financial contribution to the home, to the family? Well, I would submit to you this. You look at Proverbs 31, and you're going to get your answer pretty quick, right? I mean, you're really going to get your answer very clearly there. She was working, and she was working hard, and she was making a financial contribution to her home, but you'll also notice that her work was not taking priority over the home. It was not taking priority over the family. Her home was central to her, not her work, her home. And so there's no indication there in Proverbs 31 that she was not submitted to her husband. There's no indication there in Proverbs 31 that he was not, still not the leader and he is still not the one who has the authority in their home. In fact, if we could say it this way, to just use the, the modern parlance, if we could put it like this, really if you look at it, it was sort of a side hustle for her. She kept the main thing the main thing, but she was going out to help and to provide for her family a supplement that was there in order to help her family, but the supplement did not take priority over her role in her home, over her role with her children. And so there was nothing wrong with that. But, but if we look at the wife, if we look at the Christian wife as a mandatory, a mandatory co-provider in the family. Well, the man has said, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do 50% and you're going to go out and you're going to do 50% of all that it takes for us to live. Well, what have we done? We have taken 50% of the responsibility off of the man, haven't we? And that is what we've done. We've taken responsibility away from the man. And furthermore, if a Christian man puts that responsibility on his wife and he says, okay, now you got to go out there and you got to get it. You, you got to sort of hold up your end and you got to carry your weight. I want to tell you this. You have ignored what the Bible teaches you is your responsibility. You've ignored that. Listen, when we see what the Bible says, here's what it says. It says this, it is not your wife's responsibility to carry the financial burden for your family. It is not her responsibility, it is your responsibility. And that's just how the Bible lays it out. It is your, listen, you are the head. You are the husband. You are the savior to the body, meaning that you are the provider. You are the protector. 
You were the cherisher. You were the, the giving one, the, the loving one, the godly one, giving godly care. That is what he calls you to do. So look back to Ephesians 5, and we're going to be done here. I know I'm, I'm, I'm running long. So. so her role, what is it? To be submissive to her husband. Her motive, it is her relationship to Jesus Christ. Her reasons, number one, is how God made man and woman. Number two, it's the illustration of Jesus Christ and his church. And that is an illustration that speaks of unity and it speaks of dependency. Now, notice the extent of her submission. Notice that this is a general principle for the whole of her life. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands. Notice, in everything. So a wife might ask, okay, I see what you're saying, but to what extent do I live this out? Well, what does it say? It says in everything. This applies to all of your life here. Now, are there limits to submission? Well, obviously so. Again, uh, there are some people who just take this to the point of silliness here because they don't want to face the truth. I mean, we're not saying that, that a wife should ever violate her conscience. No, we're not saying that. We're not saying that a wife should ever violate the Word of God. You must never violate the Word of God. And so if you have a husband who is telling you, hey, stop walking with Jesus, you can't abide by that. Uh, you can't obey that. No one in any relationship of authority should ever violate the scriptures, should ever violate their biblically informed consciences. So there are limits to this submission. But outside of those limits, wherever there is authority, those who are under authority ought to be submissive and responsive to those whose responsibility it is to give loving leadership and so here with the wife it says ought to be submissive to her husband in everything so let me just ask us this morning as we close do, do these arguments do, do they have power in your conscience as we see them in the word of god i mean can you sit here and can you say oh well you know okay i, I see that but it's not going to change the way we do things in our home it's not going to change the way we live or when you hear these things, do you, men and women of God, do you, do you find a desire to, to want to live this out, a true desire to want to live this way? And you know what? As I have been looking at this over this week, my, my wish, my hope, my prayer is that when we look at our local body, our local church, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, that what would we see here? We would see a, a church of families where we have godly men who are leading their families in a way that we're going to learn about in the next few weeks, a godly way, a sacrificial way. Guys, I hope your wife doesn't have to be the leader in your home. I hope your wife on the Lord's Day mornings doesn't have to just like drag you to church, making you do all the things you need to do to be ready to come out. Uh, I hope she doesn't have to prompt you to, to serve the Lord. And I pray that you are not putting her in a place of temptation because you are abdicating your God-given responsibility and you're not fulfilling that. And at the same time, ladies, I just pray that, that we don't have women in our church who are running ahead of their husbands. 
and acting independently of them. And at the same time, I pray we don't have women in our church who are lagging behind, making husbands who are trying to lead in a godly way, making it difficult for them. I pray that what we see in this church would be men and women of God who give a beautiful picture of coordination and unity. Hey, like a head and a body, right? <laughs> a picture of that. A picture that that shows so that the people of God might see and others might see that, well, what we have here, we have something that is distinctively, uniquely, uh, unexplainably Christian because only God could do this in families. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we thank you for your order. We thank you for your design. Help us to, to receive this with soft hearts, with, with willing hearts, desiring to obey you, desiring to live out your plan because you are God and, and we are not. Knowing that you, Father, Father, you, you not only know best, but you know perfectly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. It's by grace through faith that ye are saved. A faith that's not your own. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. The gift of God to you.